Welcome to the David Gogo Soulbender Podcast. A journey through the blues as seen through the hazy recollections of a life on the road. Episode 48 of the David Gogo Soulbender Podcast is here. Where the hell have we been? I don't know. I can't remember, but then I can't remember what I had for breakfast, so there you go. On this one, David sits down with the founder of Canada's iconic Stony Plain Records. A cat who needs no introduction. And so... Hey everybody, David Gogo here. Welcome back to the Soul Bender Podcast. Um, it's been a crazy a good weekend so far in Toronto at the Maple Blue Summit slash awards. And I'm very fortunate to have access to uh, so many wonderful people in the music business, especially the blues slash roots uh, business, uh, that, that have offered their time to, to sit down and speak with me. And... Um, my guest today is the legend, the legend, <laughs> Mr. Holger Peterson. Now, Holger, uh, you know, it, 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 it seems strange for me to interview you because you're, you're usually the guy that's doing the interviewing. And so I appreciate your time. Um, so we were just talking because I, I had Richard Flowhill here. I'm trying to remember the first time I met you. And we were just saying it was probably in New York City. Amazing. Uh, you've got a, a really good memory for that. And it was at the Carnegie Deli, is that what you said? The, I, I think you know, so. The legendary place, yeah. of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. because I'd never had one of those big sandwiches before. <laughs> you know, I was about 19 or 20. Well, I was probably 21, I guess, because I think we could get into the States. And that was part of um, some kind of a showcase for Canadian bands. Mm -hmm. And um, But I think it was, it was you and me and Richard, I think. Sounds right. And we were saying that it was the, the showcase that night was... Um, my band, the Leslie Spit Trio, and the Bare Naked Ladies at the Limelight in New <laughs> yeah. York. And I remember Sean Lennon was backstage. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Was, was that pro probably the first time, maybe, that we... It was that. I don't remember that year, but I do remember also meeting you in Victoria at Harper's. Oh, that was with it. With Doug Song. With Doug Song. That, okay, that, you're right, that, that, that was it. Because I remember um, they tried to build it as, as a Sir Douglas Quintet, and Doug wouldn't have any part of that. Uh -huh. But that was with Rocky Morales and... Um, Jack Barber. Jack Barber and George Raines. George Raines. And was Gene Taylor there? Gene was there. Yeah. And, uh, I don't know if Amos made that gig or missed No, that, Amos wasn't there. But he was on the rest of the, the tour. Okay, yeah. that's right. Okay, so that's where it was, at Harpo's. What a great club that was. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Um, so for people that don't know, you know, give me like a, like a, like a little synopsis of, of your resume. You, you've done this Saturday Night Blues for how many years? 35 years. Wow. Yeah. And CKUA? Since 1969. <laughs> you know, that's the year I was born, right? <laughs> and, and that's as, as, as a, a radio presenter, programmer. Yeah. Yeah. But you started, because I'm, I'm always intrigued, too, with, with people in the music business that aren't in bands, but, but you're a drummer, right? Yes. Yeah. Is that how what got you into it, or were you just... Pretty much, uh, you know, the British Invasion came along, the Beatles were in Ed Sullivan, people went crazy, and that's really what kick-started it for so many people, myself included. And... For me, it was collecting records, I think, that really started that whole thing because 
downtown in Edmonton, uh, around 97th Street, uh, Jasper Avenue, there were two places next door to each other that were uh, juke joint uh, replenishment service stores. Okay. And you could go there, you could buy five singles for a dollar. Wow. Yeah, it was great. And they were all like ones that were too obscure to get on the jukebox or ones that were maybe worn or whatever. Uh, so I started spending my allowance down there on Saturdays. I'd go through them. I'd pick out five records, look at the label, produced by, recorded in England. What's oh, the capital swirl label? It's something else, you know. So you kind of have an identity with uh, the music. And I just thought that was, you know, that was the best thing in the world. Maybe I could have my name on a record or a band's name that I was involved with on a record. That would be that would be my yeah. accomplishment. <laughs> yeah, I remember that's the first record I ever made. Um, I, I signed with Capitol Records because I wanted to see my name on that <laughs> label of the Beatles. Right. <laughs> Unfortunately, by the time I, uh, my record came out, they changed it just to EMI Music Canada, and in fact, they stopped printing vinyl. And it was a fucking terrible situation as well. But anyways, so so that so that was the thing. So you know, with with listening to records and collecting records, was that something unique just to you? Like, did you feel like was that just your thing, or did you have buddies that did that as well? Or uh, it was pretty much my thing. Although there were people in junior high school uh, who collected Beatles records or Dave Clark Five records. Right. And, and they would show them off and that sort of thing. But it didn't go much deeper than that for most of those people. Uh, yeah, I don't recall any of my friends going down and, and buying those obscurities. And you're still an avid collector. Yes. Yeah. Because when I see you out in Nanaimo once a year or whatever, <laughs> you go down to Fascinating Rhythm and... Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's funny that you eventually started a, a record label. But did you ever... Do any recording that was on a label or as a musician? Yeah. In 1972, uh, I was with a band called Spiny Norm's Whoopie Band. And we <laughs> won a recording contract at okay. GRT. <laughs> GRT Records. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I yeah. Remember that remember label. That label yeah. Uh, we won a contest. Doug Riley was one of the uh, oh. judges. Wow. And, you know, part of the, uh, the, the contest... Uh, was that you get to make a single, and we did, uh, for GRT Records. They were forced to release it. <laughs> uh, that was the first one. Uh, but at almost exactly that same time, uh, Walter Shakey Horton came through Edmonton <coughs> with Willie Dixon's Chicago Blues All-Stars. They played the Jubilee Auditorium, and I had already started doing radio shows for CKUA and was interviewing people. So I was backstage, and I met everybody and interviewed Willie Dixon, Lafayette Leak was there, uh, and Walter Horton was there, but he was kind of, he wasn't talking to people. You know, he yeah. was, uh, and he had that reputation. I'd read a lot of blues magazines up to that point, too, of course. And so I knew he was kind of reticent, shy. Uh, turns out that Willie said, well, we're staying in Edmonton for the next three, four days. Um, you want to come by tomorrow and hang out? Uh, we could do some more interview if you want. Um, so I said, Absolutely. I showed up, talked to Willie some more. He was very friendly, very outgoing. And Walter Horton walked into his room uh, while we were talking, and, and then we chatted for a bit. And I said, Walter, is there any chance I could do an interview with you? 
And he said, sure. You know, and he had a bottle of teacher's scotch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was, he was down the hallway. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I knocked on his door, went in and did an interview. And I said, by coincidence, I was working with this band, Hot Cottage. And I said, would you be interested in doing, uh, coming into the studio, you know, before you leave? And uh, doing a couple of tracks. And he said, sure. So it was a done deal. I picked him up the next day, actually, in the morning and took him into the studio with the band. We recorded two songs. They were over the moon. We all were. You know, here's the legendary well, Walter yeah, yeah. We knew who he was because he had recorded with Fleetwood Mac. And Fleetwood Mac was the... The original with Peter Green. And yes. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that, that was... We idolized Fleetwood Mac. Everybody in the band did. Yeah. And he had also recorded with Johnny Winter on that first Columbia record. Yes. So we were in good company. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, it's, it's funny. I was just going to mention Johnny Winter because I did a lot of touring with Johnny over the, the decades and got to hang out with him, especially in the last few years of his life. I was opening and, um, you know, we're, we're playing Canada, you know, so it's a lot of hang time, you know. And I would tell his management, the band, you guys can take off, have dinner or whatever. I don't mind hanging out with Johnny Winter because you you'd kind of have to like babysit him, you know. And I talked about the Muddy Waters albums that that Johnny produced, Hard Again and I'm Ready and all those. Like to me, those are some of the best blues albums ever recorded. Yeah. In terms of performance, uh, fidelity, everything else, and he told me that he wanted Walter Horton as the guy on harmonica, but unfortunately, the drinking mm -hmm. wasn't working out, yeah. so they had to get James Cotton in. He said otherwise it would have been Walter. Yeah. So it's it, you know when you mentioned the, the bottle of teacher scotch or whatever you know, um, well that's fantastic that he did it though. I know. And what happened? That was in April of 1972. Okay. Uh, I put a single out. Well, London Records actually, bless their heart, licensed uh, Walter Horton, you know, Hot Cottage single. They put it out. We got hardly any airplay, but it was such an inspiring situation for all of us in the band uh, and myself that you know I kept in touch with Walter I asked him if he would come back and do a full album which he did in September of that year and I got him a bunch of work in Edmonton um, he came in did the records did some gigs and flew home and that was the very first album I produced was Walter Shiki Horton with Hot Cottage Wow so you were the producer that's cool um, so did, did you grow up in Edmonton, like, or where are you from originally? I was born uh, on this little island called Pelbaum, which is in the North Sea, uh, northern Germany, right on the Danish border. Right, okay. And my uh, family immigrated here, uh, so when I was five years old, we arrived in uh, Verdun, Manitoba. I uh, lived in Boisevine, Manitoba for a bit, and wow. then uh, moved to Edmonton um, three years later, which was 1958 or something like wow. that. So what was it, what was the music scene like when you were a teenager in Edmonton? Like it, it seemed like it was a, a pretty cool scene. It was from what I've heard. Yeah, there were a lot of bands doing original material. Um, AM Top Forty Radio were supporting those bands. My favorite was a, was a band called Graham and the Wafer. Uh, they were they did British material. You know, they covered the latest Who songs and the Kinks and all that <laughs> stuff. I love your shirt. <laughs> And I used to, you know, when you're in high school, you find bands, you follow them around. Right. They play community halls, they play other high schools. That was my band, Graham and the Wafer. 
and anyway, that was a that that's how I kind of like got involved in following the band scene and 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 figuring out what bands did and how they did it. When you produced that track, like I'm trying to think, like how did, how did you decide that you wanted to start a record label? Was it out of like that? Like, I just want to start a record label, or was it good music has to get out here somehow? <laughs> what was what was it? It was um, it was a process. One thing led to another. Uh, and was it those... was it originally Stony Plain? Like was, was that your first thing? It was, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. But but I, before that, for the three years before Stony Plain, I was producing records and licensing them to other other companies. So that oh. was. Uh, I had the vision. I wanted to produce records. I ended up, you know, by licensing, you're doing everything. You're packaging it. You're doing the photography, the liner notes, and right. you're mastering. You're doing everything, and then you have to try and find somebody to release them. Yeah. So my first records were that Walter Shakey Horton, followed by uh, two records with Johnny Shines, uh, followed by uh, Roosevelt Sykes record. Oh, bring man. them to Edmonton. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I look back. Uh, also, anything that would keep me in the studio. I produced Humphrey and the Dump Trucks, I produced Paul Han, I produced a kid's record with John Allen Cameron and Connie Calder. I produced radio and television jingles and commercials and things like that. A um, little bit of film soundtrack work locally. I, re I loved being in the studio, I loved the, the environment, I loved working with musicians. Yeah. So then after kind of knocking on doors several times and each time you do a project you've got your money invested in it and you try and find somebody to release it. I thought well I was working with London Records they had licensed a few things and I said if I started a label would you distribute it and they said sure no problem so that's how Stony Plain started. Uh, Alvin Johns and I registered the name in uh, the fall of 1975, and the first record came out uh, in the spring of 76. Wow. So, so many albums. I mean, it, is, it's, it, it must be amazing for you to look back and, and, and look at, just see the catalog and the mm -hmm. artists. And yeah, yeah. What are, you, what are some of your favorite memories of the artists you work with? Yeah, so many, you know. A lot of people that you know People like Doug Somm, you know, that Amos Garrett, Doug Somm, Gene Tanner. Yeah, that, was, that was just amazing. Working yeah. with those guys was great because it got me to Japan and, and a lot of other festivals. I remember that, yeah. yeah. That's right. That, that's when we met. Just They were, were taken off then, right? Yeah. 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 I, think, I think Amos was stuffing Levi's into his guitar case to sell Levi jeans in Japan <laughs> for a premium cost or something. <laughs> Working with Amos has been a blessing. Um, mm-hmm. You know, in addition to going to Japan, I've also been with Amos all over the place, you know, Europe. And, um, Long John Baldry, who was a friend oh, of yours, yeah. I loved working with John. What a, what an amazing character. Yeah. And and musician and person and everything, but like larger than life, literally. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. How many records did you do with John? I think his last five albums. Yeah. I remember you guys did the Lead Belly one and. Yeah, what 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 a what a character. Mm -hmm. I um, I had lunch with um, Andrew Oldham one time, and um, and then ended up in interviewing him 
for a radio show. It was for a brief time in Vancouver, there was a, a radio station called Shore 104, and they played great stuff. And I had lunch with Michael Burke, uh, who owns Cordova, Inter Cordova Bay Entertainment, and he invited me for lunch with Andrew, and I just said, i got to get you on the radio. So they allowed us to go on for like 20 minutes, but then I just I took him into a different room and just interviewed him. But he, he just loved talking about Baldry. That was a big Fantastic. thing. Yeah, yeah cause he just, like, everyone loved Baldry, and why Absolutely. not? Yeah. yeah. How could you not love him, right? <laughs> I remember doing an interview with Mick Fleetwood once. Um, it was a phoner, and pretty regulated and restricted, and you've got 25 minutes, and that's it. And so, you know, 25 minutes comes up. I said, I've got one last question. I said, you know, we were so fortunate to have Long John Baldry in Canada and especially in Western Canada, you know, for all those years before he passed away. I said, do you have any memories of Long John Baldry? And he just told these great stories he, because he would, he would walk down the street and people would think he was Long John Baldry in, oh. in Western Canada. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and the thing about, about Baldry, um, yeah, I mean, he, he would... He would he he was so generous to everyone, yeah. you know, and, yeah. and 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 people loved him. I mean, the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, yes. yeah. like there was that, that. Apparently, there was one thing, a TV show in, in in England one time, and they said, "Well, if you want us, like, like the Beatles are singing background, yeah, with Baldry, yeah, that's my mojo working, yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah." In fact, I I got a call out of the blue. I remember Baldry told me one time. He said. Uh, he said, I've given your name to a few people here and there because you always know where I am and how to contact me. And, and if people want to contact me, you're the, my best connection. I said, great, okay. I get a call one day. Uh, I'm in the office at night, and, and uh, this woman said, you know, that she was looking for Long John Baldry. I said, okay, great. Um, you know, can I ask who are you and, you know, can I help? And she said, well, I'm Keith Richards' personal assistant, and Keith would like to talk to John. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that was pretty thrilling. So, you know, I put kind of connected that. And, and then when the Stones came to Edmonton, it was really nice to have a little contact. And Did you hang out with the Stones? Um, Maybe. Didn't really. No, yeah. no. Got an invite to the green room, and um, Ron Wood came by and said hello. And, you know, but uh, that was it. But it's amazing that those guys, these huge rock stars, are reaching, they're the ones reaching out yeah. to talk to John. It wasn't John going, hey, remember me? It was, we got to talk to Baldry. That's right. And it really was, for the people in Western Canada, for the last 10, 15 years of his life, or whatever, it was such a, a, a treat for us to have him around, wasn't it? Yeah. And, be, you know, you could go down to a local club, see Long John Baldry. Yeah. You could hang out with Long John Baldry. <laughs> um, yeah, we went to Australia together, and that was really... Oh, really? That was his first time in Australia, and he actually had family there, so I got to meet some of the family. Um, yeah, wonderful experiences. Yeah. <laughs>
from the album named after the podcast, that's Whiskey Train. David did a short tour with Robin Trower in the long ago before times and got inspired to rework one of Robin's early efforts with Procol Harum from their home album. And here comes more of David's chat fest with Holger Peterson. So have you ever had any experiences running a label or as a promoter where you deal with an artist that's an absolute fucking asshole? <laughs> if you don't mind answering, but, but have you had unpleasant experiences or has mostly been good? It's been almost always good. Yeah. You know? I mean, there's the odd exception. And, and even artists that may have that kind of reputation, you know, um, I've been fortunate. I got along with I think in blues and roots music in general, yeah. that, that, that yeah. we're, you know, things yeah. work out. Like, like, I've always heard that, that old expression, never meet your heroes. Well, I met a lot of my heroes. and. 99% of them are wonderful, you yeah. know? Yeah. You know, whether it's, you know, you've worked with a million people. And I think that there's something about the, the kind of music that we're into that, you know, we get along. You know, it's, it's a good thing and, and the, there's nice people. Yeah. And they might not have, you know, I, I think part of it is probably that, you know, we've all had our struggles along the way, so we all get along. And it's a level of success that you devote your life to because you love the music. Yeah. And so you're you usually surrounded by people that love the music and when you know you're you don't have to play the game, you know, as as far as uh, being a rock star and, and all those things the demands on your time aren't aren't as great. So when you when you meet people that are genuine and want to talk about blues and and want to know about, you know, you're part of that. I think it's uh, yeah, I think that's what it is. And I think we're all fans, too, like yeah. of each other and what's yeah. going on. And, um, yeah, because someone once said to me, you know, like, blues music, you know, high floor, low ceiling. Like, yeah. every town's got a blues bar, especially back in the day, but you can only play the blues bar. You're not going to play the, the hockey rink or whatever. But, but we do it because it's what we do. We have no choice. Tom Wilson said that to me once. Tom said, Gogo, you're like me. We're lifers. Like, we have to do this. Yeah. It's, it's just, it's just an, an instilled thing. Um, so what, at what point are you now at with your life career? <laughs> did, did you sell, the, you sold Stony Plain? Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, Alvin Johns and I uh, were partners for almost 45 years. And... He was a bit older than I was, and you know, I am, and and he he wanted to uh, devote more time to his family and get out of the business, and and when I started realistically looking at you know the options, uh, well I could continue, but I could never find somebody another great partner like Alvin who does all the administration and takes care of all the the business part of it for okay. the most part, um, and so it's probably a good idea for me to step back as well. So that's what I did. Um, over the course of those years, I think I was, I've been involved in probably almost a hundred records myself, albums. Wow. And between licensing and other deals, I mean, Stony Plain released over 400 records during that time period. Wow. So that's a pretty, pretty that's good That's impressive, track yeah. 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 So it, uh, it came to that point, and uh, Jeff Kulowek at uh, True North Records, uh, had been one of the people that was kind of courting us over the years and saying when you're ready to do something let me know and 
So when we started talking more seriously, he said, well, what would you like to do? And I said, well, I'd like to, to continue to do the production part of it, um, but overseeing the production, not the studio uh, production. So um, that really is kind of executive producer, okay. being an executive producer. So I continue to do that with artists that, that want me to, uh, to be you know, playing that role. So people like Dick Robillard and Ronnie Earle and uh, Maria Maldar, Kenny Blues Boss Wayne, uh, Steve Mariner, uh, Rory Block, um, you know, several other projects. So I'm really happy to play that role. I work with them to, you know, develop, a, a, you know, the best kind of record they can. And if they need help with packaging or photography or sequencing or, you know, getting a studio or whatever, I'm there to help with that too. Okay, yeah, because I was curious because I, I, you know, I'd heard it's been a few years now since you sold the company. Four years. Yeah, but I'm always seeing your name, and so I was wondering what your involvement was, and and that sounds like like at, at this stage of your life and career, it, it it must be nice. Absolutely, yeah. And you have all that experience to draw on, and yeah, yeah. And I bring projects to uh, to True North as well, which. Uh, appear on the Stony Plain label, like the uh, New Moon Jelly Roll Freedom Rockers, which was, you know, with Charlie Musselwhite and, and uh, Alvin Youngblood Hart. Oh, I love Alvin. And uh, also, um, um, basically, the uh, uh, North Mississippi All-Stars, mm -hmm. uh, so, and Jimbo Mathis. So that was a really great project, an all-star kind of band with six people. It was uh, volume one and volume two. And there's other things that I, I you know, sometimes bring to the table. I, um, it's so interesting to see Charlie Musselwhite playing guitar these days. Yeah, isn't that nice? Because, you know, you know one thing with, with the pandemic was, was you know, I was, I was, I've never been at home so much in my life. So I started going back and listening to a bunch of the, the old vinyl albums I have. And a lot of blues, early blues. And the one guy the other day, I had this crazy, it's, it's on chess, on the chess label. Chicago Blues Anthology, mm -hmm. but it's like John Brim and all this good, but Robert Nighthawk. Yeah. And I yeah. forgot how much I loved that sound of Robert Nighthawk. And then I saw Charlie Musselwhite playing slide guitar on something on the on YouTube or something, playing slide guitar like Robert Nighthawk. <laughs> but it's so cool to go back and, 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 and rediscover the things that excited you about the music back mm -hmm. in the old days. Yeah. Um, I'm glad you brought up the Mississippi Connection. So you, I remember speaking to you one time, and you used to go down for um, the Fife, the Fife Festival. Yeah. What was it called? Well, I, I went to one, one of those, um, yes, uh, with the Burnside family down there. Uh, it was a big pig roast. I only went once. Actually, oh, did, only was, once? Okay. Yeah. yeah. And, and who, who's our man that was the Fife guy? Other? Other Turner. Yeah. Other Turner and his family and his daughter uh, carries on that tradition. They still do it? Yeah. And it, it's interesting to see um, Cedric Burnside yeah. carrying on, because R.L., was R.L. his father, his uncle, or I'm trying to remember? Um, R.L. is his father, I believe. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. And Cedric's one of those crazy guys that plays guitar and drums mm -hmm. and sings, and yeah. yeah. Yeah, and won a Grammy this year. Yeah, I saw, yeah, oh, yeah. that's right, yeah, yeah. Um, are you still excited about doing all this stuff as you as you were fifty years ago? Yeah. 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 I spend most of my time like when I like reading. I read a lot of biographies, music stuff. Yeah. Uh, love doing two radio shows a week. It it really keeps me current. I think as far as especially on the Canadian 
scene, trying yeah. to, you know, uh, find as much great Canadian music to uh, to share as possible. And yeah, and the people, as you know, I mean, it's there's so many great people in the music scene, and, and especially the blues and roots music scene. It's wonderful to be at a thing like this. I yeah, I think that's like like we're at the uh, Maple Blues Summit right now, and you know, obviously with the pandemic we haven't been able to do anything like this for a while and it is so wonderful to see everyone again it's it, it's it's fantastic and that's the other thing is that if you've been doing it long enough you know there's some of those folks that aren't around anymore you know so yeah. it's not it's nice i think we, you know it's, it's important for us to do this as much as we can and and and, and as i mentioned in, in this genre of music like there's a real camaraderie you know there's a there's a real thing you know and and, and people support each other um, and I'm noticing that now too with with festival bookers, they're starting to work with each other instead of like competing against each other. Like, okay. like, like let, let's make it work, you know. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so you've been doing this for, for such a long time. What are some of the biggest things that have changed that you've noticed that are either good or bad in what you do? I think. On the uh, the bad side, unfortunately, there's a lot less people involved in that genre. Um, one of the things that I started doing when I started Stony Plain was going to international conferences and conventions. And that's where I would meet people from Europe, all over the world, who were like-minded, who were into blues and roots music, who had labels, who had distribution companies, who had the passion for it. There's very little of that now. Yeah. There's a few labels, but they're the survivors. In the early days, I remember going to American conferences and conventions, and there'd be a room full of people yeah. uh, who were part of the blues business, uh, usually labels and agents and managers and that. And well, I think I remember talking to you one time, and you had just gone to the Medem conference, and you uh, we were talking about Philippe from uh, Dixie Frog. Right, yeah. So that kind of a thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and that was that would be a great opportunity for people like David Gogo to have you know Dixie Frog releasing their records, yeah. uh, your records in in Europe and promoting them and and you know opening the door for you to tour there. And that's kind of yeah, that's changed, doesn't it? Yeah. So where do you see um, the record industry going? Is it? Like it's it's so strange the way the vinyls come back, but with with live streaming and uh, you know, or sorry, not live streaming, but streaming, Spotify. I had a, a funny phone call once a while ago from Miles Goodwin of all people from yeah. April Wine. Yeah. And um, he said, "I saw on Facebook that you're writing for a new album." He goes, "What are we writing for? Like, what are we doing?" Is it is it scary to you? I mean, you know, you you've, you've sold your company, but it, it, where are we going with with, with <laughs> like physical copies? Yeah. Well, of course, everybody uh, you know loves to see vinyl having a resurgence. Yeah. But the big problem right now is that if if you wanted to put out your next record on vinyl and you had it in your hands today, you'd have to wait six months, yeah. and then you might be bumped a few times along the way. And Hashtag Adele. Okay. I might say, do you know that story? No. So my, my latest album was released officially October 8th. We paid up front to get the CDs and the vinyl. And then we were told, oh, because of COVID, you won't get the vinyl till November 8th. But then the singer Adele had her record company go in, because she's going to have a new album, 
and they paid off the um, vinyl manufacturers because she's going to have this big tour. They said we're going to, you know, we want you to press five hundred thousand vinyl albums for her big tour. So we all got pushed to the back of the line, even though we'd paid up front and everything else. And then two days before her tour, she canceled the tour. Wow. Oh no! How fucked is that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So sorry, I, I kind of cut you off there, but like, yeah. we're, we're, like I, I love going to record stores. I mm -hmm. love, you know. And my son, who's twenty three years old, just bought a turntable, and he loves going to the record stores. There's not a lot of record stores left, but I love the physical thing of holding an album. Yeah. But like you say, it takes so long, and yeah, vinyl's you know cool, but. In terms of, of, of a, like a traveling musician, it's a lot easier to cram 50 CDs into your guitar case if you're going to go play a festival on the weekend than vinyl. Yeah. And shipping is so expensive. Oh, yeah. And you can't return them, so record stores make the commitment. They, they can't return it if it doesn't sell. So they're very particular about it. Um, and if you're a, a record label and you're waiting six months, it's like, wait a minute, is there still going to be interest six months from now? Yeah. I've got a thousand jackets printed. Do I do 500 albums or do I, eight, do I do 800? Because if I try and order another 300, it's going to take me another eight months or whatever. Yeah. It's, there's a, it's very frustrating for everybody. Yeah. 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 It's, it's, yeah, it's kind of a nightmare, really. Yeah. And, and, and basically, it's just about getting your art out there. And when we have to deal with this... Horseshit, yeah. Um, so, what's on the horizon for you? Just yeah. Well, I'm working on a few things. Um, this has been a good year. Uh, new Ronnie Earl, new uh, Duke Robillard, uh, Kenny Blues Boss Wayne is on the cover of Living Blues this month. Oh, is he really? Yes, yeah. I love Kenny. Maybe the first Canadian ever to be on the cover of Living yeah, Blues magazine. Yeah. So that's pretty big. Um, and yeah, carrying on with my radio shows. I love doing those shows still. I love uh, the interviews, the opportunity to do interviews with people. Mm -hmm. uh, lots of summer festival activity coming up. I'm looking forward to that. They're back. Yeah, yeah. That was crazy too. <laughs> this whole this whole COVID thing. I mean, oh good lord, yeah. And it's it, it's it's nice. I was kind of wondering, like. Now that live music is slowly happening, it was kind of baby steps, and I was kind of worried because, you know, with the blues roots crowd, sometimes you have a little bit of an older demographic, and I wondered if those people would were nervous about coming back, yeah, and being exposed, you know, because you know, COVID's still out there; it really is. Um, but the shows I've done, people are just excited, and you know, it's, Great. yeah, yeah, yeah. Are you doing some more stuff with Steve this summer? Or in the with Mariner, we're do, we're doing. Um, uh, Calgary. Yes, I'll be there. I'd love to do way more. He, he's just such a busy guy. You know, he's a talented guy. He's a busy guy. He's been working with Colin James and everything. But we did um, 13 shows together in October when, I, when my album came out, which he produced and played on. Um, but we did two nights. Harry Manx, Steve was in touch with Harry, and Harry said, you know, I see you guys got this Tuesday, Wednesday off. We could probably do two nights on Salt Spring Island at this hall. And at the time, I think they were allowed 80 people a night because it's limited capacity with COVID. And I, I'm such a silly Billy. I was like, Tuesday, Wednesday, oh, I don't know. They put the tickets on sale. Well, within one hour, both shows are sold out. So and then for the three. Point hall? 
Yeah, Beaver yeah. Point Hall, yeah. yeah. So the three of us, so it's like myself, Mariner, Manx, and I sing a song, Steve sings a song, Harry sings a song, and then we do it again, and then it's a break, and then we do it again, and that's the show. It was such a delight. And then we kind of looked at each other like, we should probably get someone to book this act <laughs> and do a tour, you know? But the thing with, with, with Mariner, you know, he's got, he's got his solo career, he's got his monkey junk career, uh, he's playing with Colin James, you know, he's playing with Paul Reddick. And, and so, we, you know, I'd, I'd love to do more. It's just, just that he's just going everywhere, you know? And, yeah. and, and rightfully so. I mean, what a talented guy. I've said, you know, I think he plays on every second Canadian CD that comes out, and I'm, I'm almost sure that, that that's the case. I think he's that'd be correct. New Sass, Jordan... Just, just about everybody. You know, he, he's such a, a, a friendly, you know, face to everybody that, you know, and, and he just loves playing with people. I think. He, I, I, I was saying to someone earlier that I, I wish I had his energy, you know, yeah. but, but the thing is, he, he's so talented, not as a musician, but now, I guess his thing during the pandemic was, he was hanging with Jimmy Boskill at Jimmy's studio, so he honed his engineering chops. And his mixing chops and his studio chops, on a, on a technical side, the fact that he can play guitar, harmonica, piano, drums, yeah. bass, sing—you know—it's like, <laughs> just on top of that. Um, but he, yeah, he just—he just genuinely loves yeah. the music. I was involved in the uh, Max Mariner Mainline Records. Oh right, yeah. And, uh, Steve also did the video for that. He shot the video for that. <laughs> did he really? And, and oh. then, you know, talking about honing his skills, he put together his skills as, you know, learned how to edit and, and film a video and wow. put it all together. Good for him. Yeah. Yeah, the tour we did, um, it, was a, it, was, it was just incredible. And, and, you know, just the fact that we were allowed to play again. But then the two of us like, going out, and, you know, every night was different. Like we kind of had certain songs, like we knew we were going to start the set with one song, and but the other times it would just be like, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna lay something on you, key of G, let's do this, <laughs> you know. But we trust each other enough that uh, we know we can do it. It was a great show. The, the the show I saw in Edmonton with you guys, it was fantastic. Oh, thanks. I think that was the first one we did. Was that up in St. Albert? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That was the first one. So then, by the time we were finished, it was like. Can we do, please do another fifty shows like this? Because it was just so it was just so fun for us to do yeah. it. Well, Holger, I thank you for your time, and um, I guess we're going to go and watch some more blues music tonight. <laughs> thank you, David. Well, I appreciate the uh, the opportunity. Of well, thanks. Thank you. Thanks for doing it. My pleasure. We are two episodes away from the fiftieth Soulbender podcast effort, if my ciphering is correct. Maybe we'll do something special for that. Maybe we won't. You just never know. I'm Scott James. He's David Gogo. Send those questions to soulbenderpodcast at gmail.com. And thanks for your continuing efforts to help keep the lights on at paypal.me slash guitar. Despite what you may have heard, we love you. Go Go Soul Bender podcast. To stay up to date, follow David on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Thanks for listening. Until next time.